Welcome to The The Get Get Together. Together. It's our show about the nuts and bolts, the ins and outs, the brass brass tacks, which I can't say, of community building. And I am your host, Bailey Richardson. I'm a partner at People & Company and the co-author of Get Together, How to Build a Community with Your People, which is now available on Amazon. Wow, what a snappy intro. (laughs) I'm Kevin, another partner at People & Company and another person that wrote that book. Heck yeah, baby. Each episode of this podcast, we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. How did they do it? How did they get the first people to show up? How did they grow to thousands more members? Today, we're talking to Ruth Verhey, a clinical psychologist working for the Friendship Bench team in Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe is a country of over 16 million people, but there are just 12 practicing psychiatrists. 12. These statistics are the norm in sub-Saharan Africa, where the ratio of psychiatrists and psychologists to citizens is about 1 to every 1.5 million people, and some countries don't even have a single psychiatrist. To add to that issue, there's been a lot of trauma and war in Zimbabwe. Ruth told us that 40 to 50% of Zimbabweans may be suffering from some form of depression and anxiety. So Friendship Bench is a beautiful community source effort to close that gap. I heard about it on Tara Brock's podcast a few weeks ago and immediately emailed Ruth to see if we could interview her on the podcast. The concept is this, grandmothers give their time to sit at benches and listen to people facing mental health challenges. The Friendship Bench that actually does something. We are managing to get people to do something about mental health issues because of that huge treatment gap that we have here. Since 2006, Ruth and the Friendship Bench team have trained over 300 grandmothers in this evidence-based talk therapy, which they deliver now in more than 70 communities in Zimbabwe. In 2017 alone, the Friendship Bench, as the program is called, has helped over 30,000 people in Zimbabwe. The method has been empirically vetted, which means it works. And in some studies, it's proven even more effective than conventional treatments like antidepressants. And since they've expanded the program to even more countries like the U.S. and Malawi. So this organization is all about training and capacity building, getting other people, regular folks, to go out and do work and reach people that you could never reach alone. And that is what is so remarkable to us and why we wanted to talk to Ruth. Kevin, what stuck out to you from this conversation we had? You know, the big thing for me was this sense of responsibility that Ruth and her organization take when they empower these grandmothers, empower these people to talk about mental health in their communities. We sort of analogy we use with community buildings that community buildings like building a fire and there's this order of operations. Are you sparking the fire? Are you stoking it? Are you ready to pass the torch? That last stage is so critical. It's about creating leadership roles within your community, whether it's a small community or something you want to expand around the world. That said... You know, truly empowering people to take over and run with it and evolve the community isn't something you just like set up and let it fly. You really have to support people. You really have to support and supercharge leaders. And in this case, when it comes to mental health and therapy, there's a real risk here about doing harm around not doing as much good as you intend to do if you don't truly take responsibility for these people who you are attempting to train and empower to help their communities. So talking to Ruth about that, I think, is um, inspiring to other folks that might be trying to expand and grow and pass a torch for something that, you know, there's might a not be less at stake, that, where there's a little health. less at stake yeah. and, and realize, you know, how uh, one should think about as a leader, how to empower and support and supercharge those leaders within your community. Rad. 
Great. Well, with that, let's get into it. Let's get into uh, it. We gave Ruth a a phone call in Zimbabwe. Ruth, where you at? One of the things that Kevin and I have realized through having tons of conversations with different people who work with communities and on community work is that we always like to say, you can't fake the funk. As an organizer, as someone who does the work, people usually have very personal and powerful reasons for working with the communities they work with. What motivated you personally to get involved with Friendship Bench? Why is this the work that you spend your time on? So I'm a clinical psychologist by profession and I've had a keen interest in mental health. I'm also a mental health survivor myself. So I am originally from Europe. I'm from Germany and I've ended up living in Zimbabwe 15 years ago. I met Dixon Chibanda at some stage when I got here and we started working together. He started the Friendship Bench. So I came in, I think like like around 11 years ago or something. Um, So I'm a trauma specialist. So in terms of trauma level, in the society and not only like you know how the WHO always puts out that one in four people will have a lifetime prevalence of depression you know like it's visible here the friendship bench that actually does something just like you said we are Mm. managing to get people to do something about something you know about mental health issues because of that huge treatment gap Mm. that we have here you mentioned um it's Dixon Chibanda who started friendship bench I think in around 2006 but could you tell us a little bit about just the early days of the organization and how it caught off the ground? Like, how did this thing get started? So he did a master's of public health at that time. And because he's a psychiatrist, his field work was to go, he had an interest in depression and therefore kind of said, okay, my field work is, let me just collect prevalence of depression in a certain township. At that time, the government of Zimbabwe had done something that they called a cleanup operation. Authorities decided that basically all illegal structures and illegal vendors had to be removed from town, from townships, etc. And um, they literally destroyed quite a few buildings, like houses of people and obviously property as well, and like internally displaced people. And I think there were probably, we we estimate probably 1.5 million people affected psychologically by this exercise. And that was around about the time when Dixon did this prevalence study. And I think if I remember correctly, must have found like about, whatever, up to 40%. I mean, pretty often we find up to 35, 40% of people suffering from depression and anxiety, which we, like in in Shona, the national language here, one of the languages, it's called Kufungisisa. That's what you always see on our website, the, the Shona term for what, what we would call depression in English, which literally translates to thinking too much. And because there was no, um, no treatment available, but also no awareness. So people would basically just mm. suffer in silence without even knowing that they've got something that can totally be treated. In a society, when you think like nobody knows about these things, then people also don't really go for treatment, but might, because they think too much, present with a somatization. Like mm. we're saying, I've got headaches. And if you go to mm. a primary wow. care clinic and the nurse doesn't know anything about a depression and just hears the person's headaches, will give the person a painkiller and send them away. Right. So, yeah, so we figured something has to happen. And then so he started 
with uh, like a few colleagues, they started this, why don't we do talk therapy, like problem solving therapy. The idea of the benches really came because in that clinic, people were quite welcoming and said, yeah, sure, you can do that, but get a room here. We don't have any mm. place here for you, you know? So that's where this, okay, well, then we sit outside kind of idea. As if there's nothing else we can do, so uh-huh. we might as well sit outside on a bench, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's and how I've it heard started. something similar with the grandmothers, which I think when I look back on it now, you know, we're pretty far away from 2006. It's like 13 years later, which is insane. And it sounds to me when you think about the concept of grandmothers sitting and listening to people with small amounts of guidance and wisdom, which will you guys train them on, which we'll get into. It seems to make so much sense. Like it's almost like a beautiful creative aha moment of the right people and the right design. The grandmothers were also kind of what I've heard is there were 14 grandmothers who were just available to do this work. Is that correct? Or how did those first 14 women come into your guys's world? The primary healthcare system here is quite smart. It's actually in a lot of the neighboring countries, it's the same way. They've got something that they call lay health workers, which are really people with no formal education that help out in a clinic. So a primary care clinic here hardly ever has a doctor, definitely never a permanent doctor. There's maybe a doctor coming to visit once a week or some, depending on what clinic days they focus on. So they might have a TB day or whatever, an HIV day or something. But usually a Hmm. primary care clinic is so small that you have maybe a couple of nurses working there and the nurse aides and HIV counselors and these lay health workers. I think their official term is actually health promoters. So their Mm. job is to create awareness for vaccination drives or for whatever cholera alertness and teach people on how to do keep your hands washed. No, how do you say it? Like clean, clean, yeah, clean. (laughs) Like clean your hands, wash your hands properly, you know, like especially when there's a lot of cholera here and typhoid Mm. and stuff, you know. So that's that's their jobs. And they work in the community. So they're not necessarily only in a clinic. They walk around the community and they also live Mm. in those communities. Mm. And so these lay health workers happen in Harare, all happen to be women. And that's how it came about that they are grandmothers, you know, because Mm. it's not very difficult to be a grandmother in our context because Mm. women very early get children, right? So you might Mm. be 40 and you're already a grandmother. It's a a little bit, I mean, it's just a little bit different. You know, women women are only women when they have children. Yeah, it's quite an interesting cultural aspect of this as well. You know, very Mm. different from, say, Western ideas, you know? And those particular women, often they have been employed. I think a lot of them have been employed in the late 80s or mid 80s. So they've been working on this job forever, if you can wow. think of it. So they kind of grew old on their job as well. Because that's an interesting thing that we found that these grandmothers are very stable. They don't they don't rotate jobs. They don't leave the job. They stay, you know? Mm. And that is often people ask us, why do you have these old women? Did you hire the older women? And we're like, no, they were just there because they've mm. been doing this job for such a long time. And the fantastic thing is because they live in their community and they've been working in that community, they know, they know the people. Mm. And they They've got this amazing authority. So also cultural concept here is the elders are very respected. And within this cultural concept of being so respected, they've got the authority to literally walk into a house and say, yo, I haven't seen you in the clinic for Mm. a long time. You don't look good. You come with me now, Mm. you know? So it's very amazing how they can just do that and they get called in and people trust them. And so I think there were just so many very, very lucky circumstances that came along 
that came together that made this whole friendship bench such a success story, you know? Do you know how you first approach these grandmothers? So they're coming in and doing other work in the clinic, and then you're basically asking them to open a new line of work. Was it them kind of personally volunteering because this issue mattered to them, or were you able to talk to sort of the organizers in those clinics to give you some of their hours? How did you breach the first group and bring them on board? So it was more of a, hey, there's another job here for you, you know, or let's list another training here for you. And by now we've trained like more than 300 grandmothers and issues of understanding that they are not supposed to give advice because that comes with, I'm the elder, I know better, I'll tell you how, what to do mm. and how to do it, right? And problem solving therapy is completely removed from that. Problem solving therapy is about me helping you to find your own solutions to the problems that you choose and that you define. I heard, um, Dixon Chibanda saying one of the key parts of therapy is the holy cow moment in an interview. And it's when you realize what's most important to the patient and you can hear the thing that they're trying to think about instead of guiding them or instead of saying, hey, let's talk about this. You really have to find the point that it most matters to a patient. Yeah, I think it's all about enabling the client to find A, important for them, but to mm. also kind of help them find their own way of looking at things, you know? Yeah. So after that initial kind of, okay, I want to give advice. No, mm. we're not giving advice anymore. <laughs> we're going through that process of solving a problem. Um, the grandmothers actually reported back to us that they use this new skill even in their own families, which means a lot, mm. you know, which means when a grandmother comes to me and says, hey, it helps me dealing with my own children or my mm. grandchildren or my neighbors or something, then I know we've reached something, you know? Mm. And then they very, very fast understood that the skill of guiding someone through problem-solving therapy, like, and that includes active listening, that includes asking the right questions, you know, helping someone to formulate what's going on in their lives, you know, that that helps them in their other kind of work. What does the training look like um, for the uh, lay health workers? People come with very little formal education. So we figured we'd have to do psychoeducation. That means we start out with what is counseling, you know, counseling skills, confidentiality, all that stuff that, yeah, that's common sense in a way. And then how to psychoeducate on what we call common mental disorders, which really subsums the anxiety and depression and PTSD and substance use. And put this in the context of um, a society that is highly stigmatized towards mental health issues. So we really felt they need mental health literacy, you know, even if it's basic, but they need to know that epilepsy is not caused by a curse or that if someone is talking to themselves and psychotic, mm. that that doesn't mean they're bewitched or something like that, you mm. know? So these, we try to really push that, what we call mental health literacy. And then we gave them the steps of the, the problem-solving therapy. So we broke that down in nice little steps on how to do it. There are lots of studies out there that problem-solving therapy is very effective. And it has something to do with people who are depressed, like literally being cognitively impaired, like their thinking ability is impaired. So mm. it's really complicated for someone who's depressed to solve a problem. And that's why mm. problem-solving therapy has been created to help you basically 
basically to get that experience of, oh, I can solve this problem, you know, which, and I think the trick here is to understand as well. And sometimes we just like to give some examples for that. So imagine you're maybe a mother of five children and you haven't paid rent and you're going to be evicted from that room and your husband is working in a mine somewhere and you have no income and your 15 year old daughter is pregnant and nobody goes to school and you don't know how to feed children tomorrow, you know, that kind of so many problems that it seems so overwhelming that, that anybody would just say, well, I don't know what, mm -hmm. there's nothing I can do. I'm losing it. I'm totally mm. hopeless. And there's a concept in psychology that, that is called learned helplessness. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite an interesting concept. If you constantly get frustrated and whatever you try never works out, most of us will give up. Mm. And that's exactly, I think it's a perfect, almost like lay explanation for, for what depression can be. It's like you have no motivation, yeah. you have no drive, nothing interests you anymore, you have no energy. All the things that you love doing I just can't pull you out anymore. It's just, everything is just too much. And someone comes and says to you, wait a minute, I know it feels like a lot, but actually, wait a minute, there are lots of little problems in this thing that feels like the Mount Kilimanjaro, you know? Let's take one. Which one do you want of the little ones? Mm. And then people figuring out that they can actually solve a little problem. And again, the emphasis here is on the client chooses what they want to work on. And getting that experience of, wow, I have to find this. I understood that this is a small problem. I've come up with solutions and I've come up with a super detailed way of getting to my solution. And I can actually carry that plan out and come back next week and say it worked, you know, makes such a difference in someone's life. Could you tell me about one, one of the grandmothers, why they, they enjoy the program so much? The grandmother is a person who's got time, right? Like it's someone who, mm -hmm. who's not going to say, hey, I have to go back to work. Like, stop. Mm -hmm. Can you stop talking now or something? It's just someone who's there and patient and will nod. And you somehow think they will understand what you're talking about. Maybe they haven't had your experience, but it doesn't matter. But they're just like, understanding and I think our training helps them to be non-judgmental because that's an, that's another one of the counseling skills you know to be non-judgmental because after all we all know that grandmothers can also be very judgmental you know mm -hmm. and very sort of strict in their rigid in their ideas you know but because they're in the context of this this is my work I'm helping someone they feel quite powerful I was super interested in the lay health workers or the, the grandmother's mental health themselves because you know like if you are living in very difficult circumstances like they don't have a high income they've got like a little bit of a like a minimal money that they get like I said same living conditions they're often afflicted by the same problems or their family members are afflicted by the same problems that their clients bring to them and there's not a lot of what I, like in my profession what I would call protective factors I felt oh this might take a huge toll on their own mental health you know on the grandmothers yeah on the grandmothers so that was my worry especially because people do experience a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of stuff that people go through. And so I did a study on their mental health. I wanted to see what are their rates of depression? What are their rates of PTSD themselves, for instance, you know, whether that's personal PTSD or witnessed or job-related PTSD stuff. And they came out as being super resilient, which is like it blew our mind, you know, and we're so happy to see that, how little the prevalence of common mental disorders was in the group of, of mm. grandmothers. And we were thinking like, not that we know exactly, we have to go deeper into this and study it more but part of it is definitely is if you help someone it helps you one thing you said in another interview was that this organization and this effort is all about capacity building 
So building the capacity of others to do this work in their neighborhoods and their com- their own communities. In the very beginning, what was the training like? What was the capacity building like? And what have you done to make it a scale so that it can reach so many more people? Right in the beginning, I wasn't there. So I get my timeline wrong there as well, because we never thought that it would be important to explain to someone what we did in the beginning. You know? mm. So we kind of just did. But at some stage, we got money to do this clinical trial and from a Canadian organization. Mm. And the moment that came through, as in we've got the grant, we need to do this, it obviously became extremely important to streamline the training and to get the, the whole idea of, okay, this is not just like a group, a handful of people, this is now a big thing and it has to be very replicable and it has to be solid, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's basically when, when I sort of build up this whole training material to that we also have used in all the other places. I wrote a big manual and tried to make it very user-friendly and set up like a training concept around it like like how you would do adult teaching you know but with the context as well it's like when we train those lay health workers yeah we're not we're not teaching someone who's 25 and has been in school all their lives these were like um, I think our oldest mm. person who graduated from the training was 83 at that time mm. we were able to do like a full mm. day of class work or something had mm. to be very hands-on and lots of singing and dancing in between and I mean it was never our intention to make um, psychotherapists out of the grandmothers so that's why I think we push so much for your skills are in, you somehow have a natural empathy skill, you have a natural listening skill, you have a natural, hey, I'm just here, talk to me and creating connection. And so yesterday when I was at the clinic, there was a visitor with us and she said, aren't people worried about confidentiality? Because they, the, there were like three benches, almost like a little shed. It was maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 square meters or something. So mm. not much space. So definitely you could sit on the bench and if you wanted, you could listen to a conversation on another bench. And, and she, she asked, aren't people worried about confidentiality? What if someone listens in? And we all said, it's not an issue here. Where people in the West would be like, oh, never, nobody's allowed to hear anything, but then be loudly speaking in their phone in the subway. <laughs> you know? like, we're like, okay, wait a minute, you know, that's your personal information. It seems much more acceptable to, to just speak and sit there and to a person who has that aura of I'm the mm. Abuya, I'm the grandmother, I listen to you here, you know? Sometimes when we talk to people who have started communities that have spread and now and they sort of empowered leaders to run a chapter in their own city. They talk about some of the initial fears they had around what it would mean to really empower people to take on this type of leadership role, to maybe do something that they weren't trained up or qualified for before that you're helping them do. With regards to mental health, it seems like there are some of, I could see some of those sort of fears and risks of, you know, are we training well enough? Are, are people doing more help than harm? How have you thought about kind of managing that that puzzle of, you know, yeah, that risk of empowering folks to take on this really crucial role, knowing sort of the potential risks there, as well as the the good that can be done if you get it right? You speak about something really important. So so the concept of using someone like a lay health worker is called task shifting. And that's really big in our context as well, you know, just because of the fact that there's such a lack of health professionals. So other people will be trained on a certain job to take mm-hmm. on this thing. I would use the word risk because that's one of my thing definitely as well as like, how do we have to do it that it's safe for everybody, right? The client mm-hmm. is safe and the lay health worker is safe as well. And of course, trained them on suicide assessment and suicide management. And I always find it extremely important that we've got a referral system that the therapist, the grandmother 
can rely on, that she knows mm-hmm. how to use. And that's why we're also quite pushing for staying within the system, you know, within the health system, I should say. So oh, we have been doing a lot of discussion internally and also with people who requested to do the Friendship Bench and get our support to do the Friendship Bench mm-hmm. in all sorts of places. And whatever we come up to this, we say, please do it within the system, in the health system somehow, so that there is a referral pathway. Mm-hmm. So I, there was one newspaper article, I can't remember what it was, where, where the journalist had sort of misconstrued it and it made it sound like the bench is in a park. And I remember getting emails afterwards from people who said, but what if, if I just want to sit on the bench, am I forced to talk then? And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, that's exactly, you know, of course not, you know, <laughs> that's why we suggest let's keep it in at least near a clinic or something, if that is a setting. So there is a place where people can go to and get help that is needed. And it's, it's often needed. Like task shifting can only work if people are trained well and mm-hmm. supervised, you know, so you need to have these, what we call lower caters functioning well and contributing to the system. You have to have higher caters who take the responsibility, basically, mm-hmm. you know, we observe, which is also like in hindsight, it makes so much sense, but we didn't think about it. The more the grandmother's working, obviously, the more they have to deal with someone who comes with suicidal ideations, mm-hmm. which is very common the better they deal with it. You know, the less they actually have to follow our quite rigid referral system of immediately run to the nurse, you know, call the ambulance, send them to the psychiatric ward, you know, that hardly ever needs to happen because the grandmothers feel so much more, yeah, empowered, I suppose, to, especially with suicide. A lot of people are like, oh my God, if I make people talk about it, they're going to do it, you know, so I shouldn't be mentioning it or I just say you're not allowed to do it, it's a sin, or you know, and, and to give them that empowerment of, hey, just listen, just stop judging, forget judging. On Friendship Bench, we don't judge no matter what people come with. And therefore, they are able to, I think, stay calm. And again, from my own experience as a, as a psychologist, in our clients can only get better if our relationship in therapy reflects, like I as a therapist can sit with your feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, I am calm and then you can get calm again through me being calm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if I freak out about what you tell me, I've lost you. I've harmed you. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, this podcast, we're interviewing people that sit in the scope of the word community. And one of the reasons why I was so excited to speak with you is because a crucial part of what I see a community to be is that the members of the community add are contributing in a way that without their contribution, the group does not function or the effort is not realized that the participation of the people who are a part of the community is so integral. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, if you were to use the word community to describe some part of Friendship Bench, some group of people, is there a community's feeling within Friendship Bench? And if so, you know, who does that show up for? What relationships does that show up in? Where I said that the lay health workers, the grandmothers, sorry, that they also work outside of the clinic, like outreach. So that makes them bring the work to the community. And we suspect without really knowing, because we haven't really managed to collect all that data or find a way to collect that data, that there's a lot of informal friendship bench work happening outside the clinic. You know, it's like say you and I meet on the market or on the street or by the waterhole or something. And then we chat and then you tell me, and maybe that's your follow up. Maybe you suddenly tell me there how it worked, what we planned last week in the clinic. So I think that's, that's happening. And then when I go back to these peer-led support groups from what we gather 
um, what we hear, the reports that come through have sort of taken on a life of themselves. So at first they were happening at the clinics and then somehow they moved out literally to, when I said to you, there's the pump where people can get water yeah. and we're all standing in line for the water and we just hold our group there while we're all waiting, you know, or we help each other while we're all waiting or very common in, in our setting and the sort of the very low income settings is that people do these mini lending schemes. So say we are a group and because we are a group, we have enough trust so that say this week we all give a dollar and it goes to you, Bailey. And next week we all give a dollar and Kevin gets the, all the dollars and can mm. go shopping. And then the week after we all give a dollar and I wow. get the money, you know? And that's like, um, that seems to work somehow. And it was surprising to us because we had never talked about it really. And I, I'm always a bit scared because that can destroy trust so badly if then mm. someone disappears and never contributes again. But some of the women have kept telling me that this is important and it's good for us and the women and the men, because we also have some men coming to these groups. Mm. And it, it's almost I, like when you talk about community, that's I envision immediately that there's a group of people who said, I'm, I'm dealing with Kufungi Sisa and I'm, it's okay. You know, I'm still a normal human being and I'm not shying away from it anymore. And, and I can help others by just sitting here and it's quite mind blowing. Again, like we didn't know it, it would turn out that way when we did our clinical trial and it just turned out to be really, really successful. That's when we got a lot of attention, like in the mental health research world, we got attention and the media, we got attention mm. and suddenly it was like this, oh, this works sort of slowly the more people heard about it, the more requests we get for they want friendship bench here and they want friendship bench there. And, and we are at the moment, like that's why I said, we're really just building the organization. Now we're trying to figure out how on earth are we doing this properly yeah. because if we want to do it properly. It's uh, my message would be always, it's not just put a bench somewhere and put someone on it. You know, there's a lot of work involved in this. There's a lot of training and supervision in it. And yeah, like Kevin, you said that you can, you can do harm to someone, you know, and therapy. And because it's such a subjective experience, like, do I gel with someone in my talking? You know, do I feel I can trust mm. that person? You mm. know, um, yeah, it's not an easy thing. If you had a magic wand uh, and you could wave it and, you know, our listeners or just some mystical power could give you something that your organization needs right now to do this really well, to take it to other cities, to, you know, scale it properly. What do you feel like you need more of. So I want mental health professionals engaged in, in sort of helping us to set us up because I, I totally believe we need mental health professionals to set it up in a place and they have to take over like training, supervision, ongoing education tasks. Um, I need dedicated people and that's probably where that grandmother thing comes in again. Like maybe I'm not in a working space anymore, but I've got time and I've, I care for people and I don't want to exclude grandfathers. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think anybody who's interested and who's got a passion in creating connection between people. I want these people to sort of come forward and be eager to learn. This has to do a lot with you have to be flexible. You know, you have to be kind of caring and supportive and so tolerant yeah. towards how different people are because this is not about someone's way of doing things. You know, the client calls the shot here. You know, mm -hmm. they say, this is what I want to work on. That's, that's really one of the biggest problems. We have to create that um, connection ability because I truly believe people can't live without connection. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ruth.
Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. If you want to get involved with Friendship Bench, whether it's bringing the program to your area or just learning more about them, go to their website, friendshipbenchzimbabwe.org. Also, I know a lot of you listening are in New York City. The benches are here. They're bright orange, and they were piloted in 2016 and launched in 2017. They've had about 30,000 visitors come and sit at these benches in New York in the first year alone. If you want to check them out, they're permanent benches in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Harlem. And there's some pop-up versions of the Friendship Bench in the city too at festivals, churches, food pantries, parks, and more. So anyway, if you want to check them out and you're in New York City, they're available to you. Yeah. Uh, You can find out more about us at our website, peopleand.company. Dot company, not a dot com. Dot company. And also our book, Get Together, same title as this podcast. Which one came first? Technically, the podcast became before we decided the yeah. name of the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You informed us. Anyways, our book, Get Together, How to Build a Community with Your People, is on Amazon. It's Yay! full of stories and big learning. Day for us. Yeah, big day. I mean, many big days. Yeah. Every day is big. Um, it's full of stories and learnings from conversations with community leaders like this one with Ruth. Uh, you can find the link to buy the book on the website gettogetherbook.com. Woohoo! Or just say hi to us. Uh, if you want to email us and we'll tell you all about the book, you can do that too. <laughs> There's an email at hi at peopleand.company. Great. Last thing, please review and subscribe. If you like the podcast, reviews really help in whatever store you're downloading from. And also clicking subscribe helps us come up in search a little bit more for other yeah. people. So, yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. See ya. See ya.